So before I begin, let me just introduce myself to you. My name is Stephen Mulder, and if you're thinking, who is this guy talking to us with a funny accent? No, I'm not from Jamaica, and that was Alistair's best guess. Nor am I from New Zealand or Australia. But thank you for thinking that I have a really crazy Australian accent. Just kidding, but not really. Anyway, I'm from South Africa, and I've been living in Canada for the past four years. And I've been a part of St. Peter's Fireside since we launched here in October. And I'm continually blown away by how God has shaped us as, and forming us as a community that is honest, that is authentic. And, um, and, we, and I love the fact that we're just a people that have come together just to figure out what it means to follow God, what it means to put God first in our life, and to be a part of bringing life, hope, and flourish into this great city of Vancouver. I'm a recent graduate from Regent College, and currently I am, I'm the regional director of Alpha. And, but most of all, I'm just really grateful that uh, I get to share and open up God's word with you today. So this is the final week in our current series, talking about how we talk about Jesus. And we have covered some of the central elements of how we can share our faith with our friends, our relatives, our co-workers, and even barristers, you name it, the people that God has brought across our path, anyone who does not yet believe in Jesus. And we've been mainly focused on the how rather than the specifics of what we share, because we know that no matter what we say, we want to make sure that we represent who Jesus is and how he would want us to speak. Last week, Alita did an outstanding job of setting us up for this final week in our series where she anchored us in the truth that the how of sharing our faith is only possible because of the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit takes action in leading us and preparing others. We are led and prepared by the Spirit. And as a, as a result, we got to see that the mission of God's people is really God's mission first. That He, by His grace, invites us into into a role to play. So today I have the privilege of wrapping up the series, of pulling everything together, and as we look at the story of Lydia's conversion, I hope that we can walk away um, encouraged. My hope is that as we dive in this text together, we will see the strand of God's grace flowing through these texts um, that tie everything together. And by this I mean that when it comes to talking about Jesus, we will ultimately see that at the end of the day, it is all God. From start to finish and everywhere in between, it is his work. Throughout our time this morning, we will see that the ball is solely in God's court, that he is sovereign over all of creation, even our salvation. So as we explore some of the aspects of this mighty doctrine of God's sovereignty, we will find that it is both comforting, that it is scary, that it is challenging, yet ultimately it is liberating and motivating for us when it comes to how we proclaim and promote the gospel in our lives and in the city. So please, would you open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 6. And as we've been doing throughout the rest of the series, we're simply going to walk through the text. And I'm going to point out some things along the way. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, 
They attempted to go to Bethania, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they set sail from Troas. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there we went to Philippi, which was a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained there in the city for some days. So let me fill you in um, so far. In the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul going on his second missionary journey, having left Troas and after being explicitly forbidden by the Holy Spirit to enter Asia, he receives a vision. The Spirit continues to lead the church where he needs them to be. We see that he, the Spirit explicitly forbids them from going into Asia. Now, at this point, um, I don't want to unpack it too much, but what I really want to get across is that we have permission to try things for the Lord even if they don't work out how we think they might. We see that Paul, um, in his, in his, the, the next logical sense would be for him to go to Asia. It was the next logical place to be, but the Spirit stops him from entering there. He tried to go to Bethania, but the Spirit stopped him. You see, the Spirit directs Paul, but only after he had tried a few times. And sometimes we need to try something for the sake of the gospel, or to take risks to ultimately find out where God wants us to go and what he wants us to do. So in the case of some people who've gone before us, if we think of some of the great missionaries like David Livingston, David Livingston who, who, who got sent to Africa in the end, he was actually intending to go to China, but God called him to Africa. And William Carey, William Carey was intending and planning to go to the islands in South Polynesia, but ended up going to India. And in the sense, it's, it's okay to be wrong. But it's clear that we just need to trust the Spirit for guidance and rejoice equally in His restraints and constraints. What we learn from this picture of the early church is that it was this gloriously messy movement. They didn't have all the answers, but they had a laser-focused message with a gospel vision that was powered by a gospel ambition. They are a radically transformed bunch of people, not because of the, the teachings of Jesus, but because they had encountered the resurrected Christ. And as a result, they are willing to go anywhere or do anything for his sake. Regardless of where they go or what they encounter, we see God's providence and the gospel taking root all over. This serves as a great reminder that God is always moving ahead of us, leading us along the way to where he needs us to be. And if we get off course, it means that he will correct us along the way. So Paul and his crew arrive in Philippi, a really influential and strategic city in Macedonia, and they settle there for a couple of days just to get the lay of the land. And we read in verse 13 and 14, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down, and we spoke to a woman who, to a woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, um, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, it's easy to miss something important here. 
Paul is adaptable. He rolls with the changes. And that's key to when it comes to sharing our faith. How we share our faith cannot depend on one single strategy, but it must be dependent on our willingness to be adaptable and to change as the Spirit leads us into new situations where what once worked no longer works. Paul's usual strategy was to go to the synagogues, to where the Jewish people were, but now he was in a new territory. He was in a new city. He didn't really um, have an understanding of, of how they operated. So instead, he chose to go down to the river because, you know, that's where all the people who need help will be. As Chris Farley famously said in his brilliant SNL skit, you'll end up living in a van down by the river. But what's more likely is this, that where the place where the God-fearers would, would um, be gathering and the Jewish converts would be there, they decided to go to the place where they think the people would be most receptive. The point is that we need to be willing to meet people where they are at, on their terms, not on ours. And sometimes that means going out of our comfort zone in order to do that. So at the riverside, there is a, a group of women, and one is singled out in the narrative, Lydia. Lydia is an influential businesswoman. Luke notes that Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth. And in those days, purple cloth was a sign of wealth and royalty. And whether she was royalty or not, Luke does not make it clear. But it's important that she was a very wealthy woman. Because I think that this is encouraging for us who live in a city like Vancouver. Because we are a rich city. There is a great deal of affluence and wealth in our city. And often it appears that the wealthy and the affluent have it all together. But this scripture reminds us that sometimes our possessions, what our possessions may con convey, our status and our world, the status in, our, in the world, our popularity or our power or success, that everybody is always looking for something deeper. We see that everybody needs the gospel. The broken, the healthy, the poor, and even the rich. You see, the gospel breaks down barriers that divide people. And through it, we get a radical picture of the unifying nature of salvation. So we read that as Paul engages in conversation with Lydia, she responds. And there is a key statement that's added by Luke in verse 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Let's read that one more time. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now we need to dwell on this point a little while. We see that it wasn't Paul's eloquent preaching or his persuasive words that made Lydia respond. The best words out of our lips are never enough. It was the Lord moving in her heart. It was God working and opening Lydia's heart to a posture of receiving the gospel. In other words, it is all God. It is God who does the saving. He is sovereign over her salvation. He is the one with the authority to make it happen. Gordon T. Smith puts it this way. Conversion is choreographed by God and God alone. And God is neither rushed nor hurried. 
This also means that the Spirit is active in the life of potential converts long before they come to a conscious faith in Christ. So much so that the conversion is a response to the saving initiative of God. It is not so much that God responds to the sinner's prayer as that the sinner in life and prayer responds to the initiative of God. Now this usually leads us to ask two questions. Did Lydia have any choice in her salvation? And if God is ultimately in control of who gets saved, then is evangelism even necessary? Let's tackle the first question. Did Lydia have a choice in her salvation? And addressing these sorts of questions um, takes us to this beautiful mystery and paradox. Of course Lydia played a part in responding. God opened her heart to pay attention, but a response is required. And we, we must take note here that it was only a response to God acting first. The Bible undeniably and unmistakably teaches that God is the one who takes action to save us and that humanity is incapable of responding to God and reaching out to salvation. He acts first. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stuck in sinking sand or quicksand, but I remember when I was young, my cousins and I were playing by a lagoon by the beach, and um, we were having so much fun, just throwing mud at each other and, um, and getting it in our hair and in our nose and, and everywhere. And before long, we realized that we found ourselves right in the middle of the sticky mud. And we were, in fact, stuck. And kind of brought a new meaning to the, the game stuck in the mud. I don't know if you guys had that here. But we got stuck in the mud, and we had to call our parents to, to come and get us out. We actually couldn't get ourselves. Anyway, so the image I, I want to give for us is in our human condition, it's like we're neck deep in mud. We can't get our hands out. We just sink. And the more that we try to get out, the more we sink. Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, You were dead in your sin, which you once walked, but it is by grace that you have been saved. And it is not the result of works. This is not your own doing. You see, dead people can't do anything. God is the one who gives life. He acts first. He gives grace. He saves. And if you're not persuaded by Paul, then listen to what Jesus says. In John 6, verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him in. So anyone who comes to the understanding of who Jesus really is, then can't really take any credit for it. And one last example. Our very own St. Peter, when he is asked by Jesus, What is the word on the street? Who do they, those out there, who do they say that I am? And then Jesus, turning to Peter, says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes on to respond, you are the Christ. You are God. And Jesus says, good job, Peter, but this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So the whole deal the whole deal with God's sovereignty as applied to salvation is that God is the hero of the story, not me and not you. 
However, we also see that God draws people to himself. Our decisions really count. We are 100% responsible for what we choose. Yet we can't make a decision to choose God without having him move on us first. When it comes to the sovereignty of God and our ability to respond, we shouldn't put these things in tension and pitted against each other. The whole predestination versus free will debate can really be solved by just saying, yep, we need to respond to God, but God saves us. It's a beautiful mystery beyond our understanding. But we see that these two truths are mutual truths that are working together at the same time and that we can't take any credit for it at the end of the day because God is the one who gets the glory. So now this image might be helpful to illustrate what I'm saying. Think about a person that is walking towards a door. They're considering going through the door of faith, crossing the the line of faith, so to speak. And as they get to the door, they see um, possibly some scriptures on the front of the door talking about man's responsibility. You know, acknowledge God, believe in me, and repent and you'll be saved. And as that person thinks about it, they act and they, they walk through the door. And as they walk through the door, they come to the other side. As they cross the threshold of faith, they turn around and they close the door. And as they close the door, they see scriptures on the back of the door of God's sovereignty. Maybe it reads, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Maybe it is a quote from Jesus saying, no one can believe unless the Father draws him. And of course, inside, on the frame of the door, there's a little Christian fish. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So we see that this person is 100% responsible for entering the door and crossing the line of faith. But as they get through the door, they see that it was God. He was the one who acted first. And as a result, they see that God is the one who chooses us for salvation. But now this may make you paranoid. How do we know if you are chosen by God or not. Now, back in the Reformation, when this was a, a hot topic, um, a woman mo- wrote to, to Martin Luther, and, um, and she was really worried that she wasn't elect. And she, they kind of wrote back and forth, and eventually Luther said to her in a letter, Madam, only the elect would have the capacity to worry about being elect. If you even worried about it, it's because God has opened your eyes to choose him and to know him. You see, the proof of your election is in you choosing God. For Lydia, the Lord opens her heart to Paul's message. She responds. She chooses God. And how does she respond? In verse 15, it says, she is baptized. She responds by being baptized and by opening up her home. Back to Martin Luther for a moment. So he used to have this crippling anxiety of whether or not he was saved. And he used to scroll on his desk, you have been baptized, you have been baptized. And he would remember that it was not his baptism that saved him, but that God is faithful to his promises, that those who are baptized are welcomed into the family. They are adopted as sons and daughters. Baptism is the sign by which we are welcomed into the family of God. And it only makes sense then that Lydia responds by opening up her home to others. 
But our second question still remains. So if there's ultimately, um, if God is ultimately in control of who gets saved, then what's the point of evangelism? Is evangelism even necessary? Consider what Paul says to the church in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. He says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how then can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how then can they hear without somebody preaching to them? In our passage in Acts, we see that God opens people's hearts to receive his word, but they need to hear him in the first place. We have been tasked with the responsibility to tell people about Jesus. It's God's responsibility to make them receptive. One of the things that I love about Jesus' teachings, especially in the parables, is that have you ever noticed that at the end of his parables, he, he ends with, to those who have ears, let them hear. I think there is this beautiful mystery involved that it is to the ones that God opens their ears. So I'd like to share with you a story of my friend Jason. Jason grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, and he came from a very poor and broken family. His mother was a nominal Christian and his father was Jewish, and neither of them really practiced their faith. His father left his mother when, um, when he was about 10 with, with three kids, and they were really poor, so his mom couldn't even afford to buy him a pair of shoes. So before it was even legal to work, he started packing bags at the grocery store, packing grocery store um, things that you buy at a grocery store into the bag. <laughs> Nobody, um, so yeah, just so he, could, so he could afford to buy a pair of shoes. And um, he ended up you know, going on to school and in high school, and he really didn't ever think that university would be an option. You know, because it was just really expensive, and he just, the thought had never crossed his mind. Until one day, one of his teachers encouraged him that because he was doing so well, that he should actually try and apply for a scholarship, because the scholarship could pay, um, you know, give you a full ride through, through university. So he ended up looking at a bunch of different scholarships, and he came across an engineering one. And he didn't really know what engineering was, but he thought, oh, well, this is a fully, fully expenses-paid scholarship to university. I'm going to apply to be an engineer. So he applied to be an engineer, and he ended up getting the scholarship, and he went on going to university. And throughout university, he excelled, and he became really popular. And he started partying up a storm, and he made many friends. And after he finished university, he worked at the engineering company, um, and then went on to be employed by Bain & Co., a massively successful consulting and advisory company. And after doing well there, he was chosen as the cream of the crop, and he was sent to America to go and work for the airline companies. And in a sense, he was living a good life. He had gone from rags to riches, as they say. And he would describe his life as working hard but partying even harder. He said that he would work all day, and then at night they would hit the bars and the clubs, and there would be drinks and girls, and then the next day they would repeat it all over again. And this went on for months, and the weekends literally came and went, and, um, and literally every weekend he used to tell me these crazy stories. He said every weekend they used to rock up at the airport. Now I've only ever dreamt of doing this, but they used to rock up at the airport and they used to see where the next flight was leaving and then they will get on the plane and go spend the weekend there. So they used to live for the next adventure, the next thrill, and the next high. And he said that at that point in his life, 
He was the richest 26-year-old that he knew personally. But in the midst of this all, he said that there was something missing, that there was a hunger, there was a feeling in his gut that he could not understand, that no matter what he did, how many girls he had, how many parties or countries he, he visited, his thirst was not quenched. And Jay started searching for meaning. And instead of going with his mates on um, the weekend, he instead stayed behind in his hammock and started reading philosophy books from Plato and Aristotle and Nietzsche and many of these other people in his search for meaning. And then one day, he was driving past a homeless guy. And all of a sudden, he had this overwhelming sense that he needed to help this guy. And he had no idea where this, had come, where this feeling came from. But he, he felt as though God, although he wouldn't use those words to describe it back then, had opened his eyes to how much God loved this guy and how much God loved him. He was overcome with compassion, and he decided to stop and buy the homeless guy lunch. And in that moment, his heart began to change, and he started on a journey towards a new path. Although things didn't change overnight, he reached a point in his search for truth that he realized that, hey, I need to consider the claims of Christianity. So um, he decided to call the only Christian friend he knew. So he phoned up his friend and said, how's it, brew? Tell me everything you know about Christianity. <laughs> and... Um, his friend, uh, imagine getting a call like that, you know, being prepared for the moment. So anyway, so he came back home, he came back to South Africa, and it wasn't until a friend of his ended up inviting him on an alpha course where he began to put the pieces of his life together and make sense of how the Spirit had been calling him and drawing him to faith in Jesus all the time. Now, I met Jay about two years after... Um, after his time, I guess, going on, on Alpha, coming to faith. And, and he's one of my good friends to this day. And one of the, the amazing things is that Jay is he's one of the pa most passionate people I know. Um, he, he's just so radically changed. And his stories are crazy. He now owns a business in South Africa that actually helps people create jobs. So, um, so he helps create jobs for people. Sorry. And, um, and it's just really good to see how God uses these moments. And you know all those crazy, party-loving friends of his, they ended up coming with him, and they ended up all coming to know God as well. So we see that God uses, um, uses us as he saves us. Now, God's sovereignty, um, you see that the sovereignty of God over salvation in Paul does not produce apathy, but in fact, it fuels him to proclaim the gospel all the more. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 10, it says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see, God's sovereignty does not promote Paul to apathy, but rather it prompts him to vigorous and energetic evangelism. And Jesus was exactly the same. When he was confronted with loads of people who weren't yet believers, he called it a harvest. And he said to his disciples, he said, Hey, guys, we need more evangelists. We need more workers. We need their people with their friends and their classmates and their colleagues to go out so that they may freely choose me. In God's sovereignty, evangelism is the primary tool in which we see the elect coming to believe in God. Yet at the same time, in the brilliance of this doctrine, it helps us understand and it keeps us from driving into the ditch of evangelistic apathy. It also keeps us from striving to share our faith 
and to evangelistic drivenness. If we put too much emphasis on our role, then we become driven. We become zealously evangelizing everybody, everywhere, trying to do God's job for him. Yet if we are apathetic because we know that God has it covered, then we all too easily become very happy, very lazy Christians that are very comfortable with a large amount of people plummeting towards eternal separation from God. The good news is that the pressure is off. That's what I want you to take away from today. That God is the one who acts first. That he is the one who prepares us to receive the gospel. That he is the one who leads us to share the gospel to those he has prepared to receive the gospel. From start to finish and everywhere in between, we see that it is all God's work. Whew, what a relief. I don't know about you, but I find this liberating. I find this motivating. And I find it comforting to know that God never intended us to carry his mission on in our own strength or even on our own. We are empowered to work it out because God is at work within us. And when we really grasp God's sovereignty, we won't use it to make an excuse about our inactivity, but it will compel us, like Paul, out of the door to make every effort to see Jesus known in our city so that people may come to know the radical, life-changing, life-transforming love and grace of Jesus.